Those of you that are already in, you can go ahead and flip over to Jonah. We're going to be studying the book of Jonah this morning. There are handouts in the back with a color map today, so extra special. Yep, so you're going to want to get a going to want to get a copy of that for sure. All right. Well, welcome. I'm so excited to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, I am Ben Hyman Johnson, uh, one of the elders here. I've adopted the surname Johnson because I've I've heard that Johnsons are allowed a little extra leeway in going longer in their Sunday school lessons, and I figure if I adopt the surname now, I'll have that as kind of like a fallback plan if I don't get done in the time. So um, you're welcome to greet me as Ben Hyman Johnson. So no offense to my parents who... Uh, you know, gave me a very fantastic surname on my own. Um, so we're studying the, the minor prophets, as you know. We, uh, we've been going through various prophets, and, and Myro kicked off the class, and he uh, told us about some themes that we would see in the minor prophets. Uh, first of all, that they were warnings to God's people, a call to repentance, uh, announcing God's future plans. Most of them are, are prophecies, sermons delivered directly to God's people. Jonah has themes of that, but it is very different than a lot of the other minor prophets in that it is, by and large, a narrative. Uh, We have a few direct commands that the Lord has given. We have a few uh, prophecies or declarations that the Lord tells Jonah to give, but by and large, it is a narrative, and it is less about uh, a prophecy to the people of Israel. In fact, Jonah is not even called to go to the people of Israel, at least not in the narrative. We know that Jonah is a prophet. We're going to talk a little bit about Jonah and what we know about Jonah. But he's actually called to go to Nineveh, which, uh, hence the reason for the map, right? Nineveh is actually in modern-day Mosul, uh, Iraq, right? So it is not in Israel. It is away from God's people, and Jonah is called to go there. In fact, I believe it's the only book that we have focused on a, a prophet who's called to go and preach to a different people than God's people. Um, it's also a great, a great story. Most of you, who, who's familiar? Who's read Jonah or familiar with the story of Jonah? I'm assuming everybody, right? Because it's a great story for a children's book, right? You can draw a big picture of a fish eating a guy. It seems really cool. But there's a lot more going on here than just, uh, just a big fish swallowing Jonah, the prophet. And so we're hopefully going to study that. Um, Also interesting in Jonah, we don't hear anything about the spiritual condition of Israel. We're going to talk a little bit about what the spiritual condition of the Hebrews was at the time, but there's nothing in Jonah that really tells us what's going on in Israel at the time. The only Israelite we meet in the story is actually Jonah himself. There's no revival amongst God's chosen people. There is a warning about the seriousness of sin, but it is a warning to the the Ninevites, the Assyrians, and not to the people of Israel, and they are the ones that receive the call to repentance. So a little bit of background, uh, we're going to cover two key figures, or two two groups, the prophet and the people that he's being sent to, uh, as we get ready to set the stage for discussing this narrative together. And and all we find out about Jonah, we have the book of Jonah, which tells us a little bit about him, uh, but we also see Jonah referenced in 2 Kings 14. Jonah was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II, uh, if you remember, the Jeroboam I, he was actually the first king of Israel. So at this time, we have 
Israel, uh, northern ten tribes, and Judah. So Israel is, uh, as a nation, is split between the two nations. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern nations, and he was given that by God and told to walk in God's statutes, and he immediately led the people of Israel into false worship and set up high places in the northern tribes because he was afraid that the people would go down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship, and that their hearts would be turned towards the king of Judah. And so he had sent up false worship in order to try to protect his kingdom. That's the legacy of Jeroboam II, and this is the people that that Jonah was primarily ministering to. We do know that Jonah is from Gath, Hafar, so I'm sure most of you know where that is, but for those that don't, that's in Galilee, right? Uh, so near, near Nazareth. Interestingly enough, uh, the prophecies uh, rebut Jesus and say, hey, no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. Well, we do know there was at least one other prophet besides uh, the Lord, and that was Jonah. Jonah was from uh, the northern tribes. He was from Galilee, uh, and we, we know that. We also know from Second Kings that he prophesied that Jeroboam II would have a time of peace and that he would actually expand the borders of Israel back to uh, their original lands, and, and we see that fulfilled in that short passage in Second Kings. Uh, there's some other traditions about Jonah in the, in the Jewish traditions, but none of those are really supported by Scripture, and that's a, basically what we know. We know that Jonah's uh, time of, of being a prophet was around uh, seven or 800 to uh, mid-700 B.C., uh, probably when he goes to Nineveh, um, it's probably around 760 BC when he delivers that message. And so he's, that's the time that he's active. He's actually a, a, a contemporary with Amos, which is another minor prophet that we're going to be studying. Um, and again, this book is, is solely focused on this series of events that leads Jonah to carry out God's prophecy to the people of Nineveh. So who are the people of Nineveh? Uh, Well, they're the Assyrians. If you uh, have studied your Old Testament much, you see the Assyrians quite a bit. They are a very warlike, vicious, conquering nation. In fact, most of the recorded history about Assyrians in their own um, historical writings is about their conquests, right? It talks about every year, what did they do in their annual military campaign? Because these were very militaristic people. And most of the evidence that's been found by archaeologists about the nation talks about them bragging about how vicious they are to their enemies. So the, the Assyrians are actually known for uh, filleting the skin off of their enemies. They would paste that up on the wall. They would take the skulls of the people that they killed and they'd make a big pile so that people knew that they were not to be messed with. Um, they cut tongues out of their enemies. They basically did whatever they wanted and then they liked to brag about that in all of their writings and carvings showing their king's dominance over the people around them. So this was, this was not like a, you know, a, a nice little group of people that a little vacation resort spot that the Lord was sending uh, Jonah to. These were, these were nasty, warlike people who were uh, a brutal people and we see them throughout Israel's history and they interact in different ways. In fact, I think next week we're talking about Nahum which has something to say about the Assyrians as well. So these are, these, are not, um, these are not great God-fearing people. They were, they were pagans. They worshipped a false god. In fact, um, we believe that they worshipped the god Dagon, which is the half-man, half-fish god. Uh, you also see him pop up in a lot of the Canaanite lands as well. Um, but I think that maybe has a, a part to play in how God chooses to, to play out this story as well, if you think through that, and we'll, we'll consider that as we get there. For a time period, the archaeologists 
uh, claimed that there was no Nineveh. So some people, as you can imagine with a story like this, there have been a lot of uh, scholars who have wanted to refute the story of Jonah. And one of their refutations of the story was that Nineveh never existed. And in 1845, there was actually a British explorer that located Nineveh. It was, as I mentioned, in the modern Mosul um, area of Iraq. Uh, actually, I, think, I believe Mosul was built around uh, some of the ruins of Nineveh, and so they've been able to excavate uh, that area. But um, as we'll talk about later, Nineveh, about 150 years after Jonah shows up, is, is completely destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, such that it's, it's so destroyed that they, they say that Alexander the Great was close to Nineveh and some of his conquests and didn't even realize it was there because the Babylonians had completely uh, wiped uh, Nineveh off the map in about 612 B.C. Uh, Nineveh is uh, along the tributary of the Tigris River. It's a significant city because of the north-south uh, trade route and an east-west trade route. So a lot of the times when you see a major city in the um, ancient times, it was because they were along a trade route and that, that brought prosperity to the city. It is the capital of Assyria. So that's kind of setting the stage. We have this warlike people who, who delights, gloats in their conquests. They have a capital. It's Nineveh. Um, Nineveh probably holds 600,000 people. We, we estimate based on, um, based on something that's said later in Jonah, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, so we're, we have Israel now. They're spiritually derelict uh, under Jeroboam II. They're still practicing false worship. You have Jonah. He's a prophet to the northern tribes. He's called by God, uh, and he's called to go to this warlike people that... Um, takes great delight in destroying other nations. So that's, that's going to set the stage for our story here. Uh, I, I will just say up front, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we at Mission Road believe God's word is inerrant, which means that we take the story at face value. There's no reason to believe that the story of Jonah was an allegory. There's no reason to believe that um, this was, was just an illustration to the people of Israel. We, we take this as real events that happened to a prophet. So I, that's how I'm going to teach it from that presupposition I believe that's backed up uh, by other things. As I mentioned, we found the city of Nineveh. It's collaborated some of the things that we know about the Assyrian people. Um, we see even Jonah mentioned in some of the history of uh, other religions in that time. So they've tried to incorporate this prophet. So that kind of suggests uh, that this happened. But um, liberal scholars are always going to look at a story like this and say there's something fishy about it. Uh, we just feel like... God controls the fish, right? So he could, uh, thanks for that, that head shake there, uh, Kelly, I appreciate that. Um, I, I, honestly, it's one of those things that I think liberal scholars, unless we were to produce the bones of the fish that swallowed Jonah, that they wouldn't believe in it. Um, but even then, I think we can see evidence when, when you see the Lord and all the miracles that he did, they still asked for more and more signs. And so we're going to take the story of Jonah at face value. Uh, honestly, being, him being swallowed by a whale is probably not the most miraculous thing that even occurs in the story, right? So um, that's the disposition that we're going to take. Also, as we go through the story, on the back of the handout, you have um, the narrative with just kind of some highlights of it, and we're going to just sort of read through it, and I'm going to kind of discuss different elements of the passages we read through that I think are pertinent. But I want you to look at the takeaways, and I know it's a little strange to look at the takeaways before we get into actually looking at it, but these takeaways, these themes that are within this book are repeated throughout the book, and I think it's helpful to look at them as we look through it and see how these are so woven into the story. First of all, 
there's a warning against man's inclination towards evil and away from his creator. Uh, we're going to see that in a lot of different facets from the people of Nineveh to the prophet that's sent uh, to some of the sailors that he comes into contact with. But, but man is moving away from God, uh, not towards God, right? We know that's man's natural disposition apart from God acting. Second thing we see is that there is a a, a present creator there God himself it didn't just create the world but he's actively engaged in his world and so look at all the times that it talks about in Jonah God intersecting with his creation right he didn't just make the world and go up oh, hope it all works out he's he's intersecting with this characters in this story throughout uh, the story and with his creation and finally we see his grace we see his patience we see his his forgiveness right that he extends um, and so um, there's, there, there's these themes, and we're going to talk about how they weave throughout the story. So with, without further ado, let's jump into uh, the book of Jonah. Hopefully you've now in the prelude had a chance to turn there. Um, and we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amite, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Uh, the word great is actually another key word you're going to see quite a bit in this passage. Um, so there's, there's a, a lot of different uses for that, but uh, just kind of keep that in mind. But the, the command of, of the Lord seems fairly simple here, right? It doesn't take a great theologian to figure out what the Lord is asking for here. Um, he's issued a command to his prophet, go the people of, of Assyria are so wicked, their wickedness has come up before me, and I'm sending my prophet to them, right? So it seems simple enough. Verse 3 starts to get a little more complicated. Um, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Hence the reason for the map, right? So uh, Nineveh, up to the northeast of where Jonah is in Israel. Uh, Tarshish to the very far west, right? So I, I like to point out, he doesn't get to uh, the, the, the port city and go, oh, do I take a passage to Nineveh? Nineveh would be a land travel for him. He, he rises up from where he's at and decides, I'm going to go to Tarshish, and then goes to the port, right? So he's, he's going the exact opposite way of where he should be. So why? We're not really told yet in the story why that is. We don't know if he's maybe afraid of the Assyrians. We don't know if if he's like, oh, I don't know, 550 miles on foot just doesn't seem like something I want to do. I'd rather take a three to four month boat ride um, through the Mediterranean. Uh, we don't really know at this point, but we know that he is actively defying God, right? He has chosen to willfully disobey God, and he is going to go to Tarshish, which uh, is, we believe, in modern day Spain, probably a Phoenician port. Um, we, we know from other scripture that there was a lot of wealth there, possibly from from stones and other sorts of, uh, of precious metals that were being mined in that area or there itself. And so he says, I'm going to buy passage. I'm going to go completely the opposite direction uh, from the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa and found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he's go- I'm going I'm to I'm get out of here. I'm going to go away from the presence of the Lord. We, you know, we know that theologically... Uh, God is omnipresent, so you, you, you can't really just get on a boat and, and get away from the Lord. But in Jonah, in his mind, uh, has decided that he's going to go uh, away from the Lord as opposed to doing what the Lord has asked him to do, which is to go to Nineveh. 
So the, the ship sets sail in verse 4, uh, or verse 3 really, they're, they're, they're setting off. We don't know how far they went, but we do know in verse 4, the Lord hurled, remember I talked about the Lord, God is intersecting in this story, is given active uh, verbs that he is doing. We know the storm is from the Lord. He hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and had fallen asleep. Um, these, are, these are sailors, right? They've seen storms on the Mediterranean. This doesn't seem like another storm to them. They're, they're worried. When you think about them, they're taking a three-month, three four-month boat trip over to Tarshish to throw all of your cargo overboard is a bad deal. That, you, you do that because you're trying to lighten the boat, right? So that your boat has better buoyancy, less likely to tip over and get sink. But when you do that, you've just thrown all the cargo, everything that, was gonna derive, that you were going to derive value from, get paid for, you've thrown that into the sea. This is desperate, right? And the, the story, the, the words used tell us that the, it's almost as if the boat is like ready to break. The, the, the wood is creaking, perhaps. The sailors are panicking. They're pleading to their gods. If they're Phoenicians, they probably were praying to Baal, who is supposedly the son of Dagon, who is supposedly the god of the sky, which kind of makes sense. If there's a storm, they would think, oh, we need to pray to the god of the sky. Their false god doesn't hear them, uh, and they're panicking. But Jonah is, is down asleep, and I like to picture, so they're going down and throwing cargo, which the cargo would have been held in the hold of the ship, and they're bringing it up and they're throwing it, but that's also where Jonah is asleep. So I like to picture Jonah down there, like napping on a bag of weed or something, and they're like, screaming, scrambling, throwing stuff overboard, running past him, and he's just asleep, you know, he's nothing going on for him. Well, they don't take too kindly to that in verse 6, so the the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. They're at, they're, they're at breaking point here, we'll try anything, what, do you have a God? Why don't you call on your God? Get up, get up, man. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They've, they've exhausted their pleading to their false gods. Their false gods, we know, can't hear them uh, because they don't exist. Uh, they're desperate. They cast lots. God, in his providence, actually allows the lots to fall so that they see that it's Jonah, which I, I find, again, fascinating that the Lord would do that, Uh, but clearly the Lord has a plan and a purpose in this. So in verse 8, they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Verse 9, this is a perplexing response from Jonah. He said, Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the people became extremely frightened, and they said to them, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So apparently in his elaboration in verse 9, he also declares to them, Yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, yeah, I took passage on your boat because I'm trying to get away from God. And they're like, uh, Are you trying to kill us all? What are you doing here? And it, to me, it's interesting because... 
these pagan sailors have more fear of God the creator than Jonah does. Jonah thought, I'm just going to actively disobey God and there's no consequence. I'm just going to get on a boat, go to Tarshish, and just sail my way and do my thing. But the sailors are like, you're, you're going to kill us. Why are you trying to kill us? Right? And um, they, they, they're panicking. Verse 11. So they said to them, what should we do with you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So if the storm was such in the in previous verses that the boards were getting ready to break, it's now become even stormier in the midst of this short conversation. And Jonah comes up with a solution for them. We don't know that this solution was given to him by God himself, but this is Jonah's solution. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. So I guess there's two ways you could look at this. Is Jonah being a hero? Is he saying, you know what, I'm going I'm to save you guys, so just sacrifice me? Um, I actually think Jonah's continuing in his cowardice here because instead of repenting to the Lord and saying, Lord, forgive me, I should have gone to, to Nineveh when you directed me to go to Nineveh, he's continuing to say, you know what, it's actually better for me to die. So why don't you just chuck me into the ocean or to the, to the sea and I'll just, I'll drown and then I won't have to go to Nineveh because I'm not preaching to those people in Nineveh. And so the sailors... They fear God enough to go, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure we feel real good about throwing the prophet of the Lord into the ocean or the sea. And so in verse 13, the men actually rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. So I, there's some level of effort. They're continuing to exert themselves to try to make landfall. They cannot. The sea is becoming even stormier against them. They then call on the Lord. So far, Jonah hasn't called on the Lord. In verse 14, the pagan sailors call on the Lord. The word Lord there is Yahweh. You can see that from being all caps, right? So they're calling on the God, the creator, Jonah's God, who he's so far refused to call upon. They're calling on him, and they say, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So remember, in our takeaways, man, men are inclined to, to wickedness. These are pagan sailors praying to false gods. The creator intersects with them in his creation, and they see that, and they seek God's forgiveness. They, they throw themselves upon God's grace. We, we don't know if they're truly saved here, but we see that they fear the Lord. And honestly, I think it's not a stretch to say, even though Jonah declared that he feared the Lord, these men acted upon a fear of the Lord by how they uh, responded to, to the Lord. In verse 17, then God, then the Lord, again, we're seeing him act in the story, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Great fish here. Uh, the word for fish is dag in the Hebrew, which is also the Hebrew derivative of, of dagon, has that same word fish. As I mentioned, dagon was believed to be a fish man god. Um, and it was a, a great fish, a big fish. So we, he was sent to a great city. It was a great fish that swallowed him. Uh, God controls the fish of the sea, 
and even though Jonah had paid for his passage to Tarshish, uh, God had other plans for Jonah in an unpaid trip uh, in the belly of the fish. How do we know, how did, how did Jonah survive in the belly of the fish? I, I, don't, I don't know. I know that the Lord controlled a, a raging storm that nearly broke a ship apart, and then immediately when he hit the water, the storm stopped. So I believe that God could sustain Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days if he so chose to, and he did. Now we see in verse or chapter 2, we see Jonah finally start to change his disposition. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you, speaking of God, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and bellows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you brought me up. You brought my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. While I was fainting, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay you. Salvation is from the Lord. So we see a change in disposition in Jonah, right? He... uh, we don't know exactly what, what happened other than when he went to the sea. It's not as if he was on the surface and the fish swallowed him. It, it appears as if he's sinking down and he is really in despair and says, you know, maybe it wasn't a great idea to have them throw me overboard. I don't really want to die, even though that was my previous disposition. Lord, save me. And God does. He calls the fish to swallow him. And he gives him a lot of time to think. Three days in the belly of the fish to think about it. And, and Jonah says in, in verse 9, I'll, I'll do what you ask me to do. I, I will submit to your plan, right? So now we have the wayward prophet saying, okay, Lord, I, I, I've sinned. I'm, I, I've, I've disobeyed your command. Now I, I, I want to submit. I fear you. I, I will go and do what you've asked me to do. Remember, this is a prophet who didn't weep at all on the boat, but calls out from the bottom of the sea, and the Lord rescues him. The actions of God seen, he appointed the fish, he heard Jonah's voice, he is said to have cast Jonah into the sea, he brought Jonah up from the pit, and then finally in verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Well, that must have been a pleasant experience. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, It sounds gross. I don't really have anything for that one. Um, But the Lord was gracious to him, right? He displayed his his grace. Did Did he have to do that for Jonah? Did he have to save Jonah? Could he have couldn't he have called up somebody else? Yeah, yes. He chose to use Jonah. He chose to intersect with Jonah. He chose to reestablish with Jonah his call to Jonah. This, this is all grace to Jonah. Even, even being vomited out of the belly of the fish was, was a grace of the Lord in his, 
gracious forgiveness of Jonah, who deserved to die because he disobeyed God, right? He was, he was stubbornly refusing to obey God, deserved to die, and the Lord was gracious to him. So now we see in chapter 3 that Jonah's actually going to undertake the mission that God gave him back in chapter 1. Uh, and we see actually at the start of chapter 3, he's going to reestablish that command, right? It's make sure that Jonah knows what he is supposed to do here. Uh, oh, I, I guess I should point out, we know Jonah's vomited on the shoreline, but we don't know where, right? So we don't know how far the boat get, got. So when I say Jonah had to walk 550 miles to Nineveh, that would assume that he was, was leaving from, from Galilee. He could have been puked up on the shore anywhere along the Mediterranean. It might have been a much longer walk for him. So he had a lot of time to think as he's getting ready to go to Nineveh. Uh, But in chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Okay, so we we still don't really know exactly what the Lord has for Jonah to declare to Nineveh, but he reestablishes, there's a great city, Nineveh, I have a plan and purpose for you, you are to go to Nineveh, get up, start heading there. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, the disobedient prophet now is complying with the Lord's uh, command. He's going to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now remember, again, assuming that he left from Galilee, that's 550 miles. Uh, they, they say in the ancient times that people would walk about 20 miles a day if they were traveling from city to city. So, you know, Rick always jokes with me about being the math guy, so it's only fair that, you know, I try to do the math there. That's at least 27 days of walking. That's assuming that you know, he left from Galilee, probably could have been longer. So let's just assume that for 30 plus days, Jonah's hiking to Nineveh, thinking about this command that the Lord has given him and this message that he is to deliver. Quite, quite a distance to get to, to Nineveh. Verse 3, second part of it. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. So we had previously it was a great city. Now we see it's an exceedingly great city uh, a three days walk. So we have a great city, a great fish, and now again a, an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And what he's talking about there is that essentially to traverse the city would take three days, right? So uh, to walk around the perimeter of the city would take three days. Again, if we're kind of using our rough math of 20 miles a day, you would assume that the city is about 60 miles in circumference, which is backed up by the archaeology of the city of Nineveh. So that, that is a, a very sizable city. If it takes three days journey to walk around it, um, that's about 60 cubic mile city, right? Um, And from that, uh, from passage uh, 411, we see that there's 120,000 people that don't know their right from their left, which is um, a way of of saying children. There's 120,000 children in the city, so you would assume that there's probably a population of about 600,000 Assyrians living in Nineveh at the time that Jonah's there, which again is is supported by the archaeologists feel like that's, that would have been possible uh, for that many people to live there. So this is, this is a massive city. It has, uh, from the archaeology, we know it has uh, huge walls that, that go around the city, as you would expect from a capital city, an important trade route. Uh, they've got huge walls there. Um, and Jonah finally makes it to the city. Verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, so the first time we're going to hear exactly what Jonah's message is, He cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Brief message. (laughs) 
Not a lot of uh, elaboration there, but watch out! This city is about to get destroyed. God, the creator of the heavens, is going to destroy this place. That's all the message we get. We don't even hear from Jonah, repent, or relent from your wicked ways, or an explanation of what wickedness they were doing. Perhaps he did it. Uh, Perhaps that was part of his message. But the only message that's recorded for us is calamity is coming. Now, like I said in the beginning, we believe that the Jonah, this action probably happened around 760 BC. Um, there were some other events that were going on. The city of Nineveh, according to um, records that have been found from that city, had two different plagues that happened around this time. There was also a solar eclipse. So there's a lot going on that for these pagan worshipers, they're, they're, really, they're really scared. And all of a sudden, Jonah shows up. Um, a lot has been made about Jonah and maybe how much the Ninevites knew of his story prior to getting there. Uh, again, remember, they're worshipers of Dagon and to hear of a prophet that was vomited up on the shores. Uh, perhaps that could have played into their response that we're going to see. We don't know that. That's kind of some speculation, right? Um, people have said that perhaps that his, his skin tone was bleached from the, the acid in the, in the belly of the fish, which I think is kind of cool to think about. But we don't know that either, right? We do know that he goes into the city. He walks around the city for one day. He finally preaches the message that God told him to preach at the beginning of this book. And then we get verse 5. Then the, the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, this wicked king, this brutal man who delighted in his conquests of other nations. He arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe from him. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. (laughs) We saw the response of the sailors, right? As they plead with God. And here we have an unrepent, or we have a, a rebellious prophet who's, finally decided to obey God, goes, issues this, and almost instantly we see in the story that the Ninevites respond with utter submission to God. They, they repent. They, they plead with God. They don't even, they don't even know or, or have faith that God is going to relent from his disaster, but they are pleading with God from, from the king, the greatest, who laid aside his royal robes to sit in sackcloth and ashes, which we see in the Old Testament as, as a way of, uh, of signifying humility and, and submission, right? They, they feel like they're utterly ruined down to their, uh, uh, a fast for their beasts. I, I don't remember anywhere else in Scripture where we see a fast extending not just to the people, but to the actual animals. Perhaps it's there. Myra will probably find me later and, and give me four passages or something. But uh, it, this is a widespread fasting and pleading with God relent, relent. We, 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 are, we are sinners. We need your grace. Be gracious to us. And 
And then in verse 10, we see God does relent from his calamity that he has promised. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Remember, one of our takeaways is a display of God's gracious redemption and his forgiveness, right? He he relents from his calamity that he promised to the Ninevites. He he honors their um, sacrifice. He honors their pleas to him and relents from that calamity. I can just picture the the headline from um, chapter four, verse one, in the Israel Times. When here here it says, "But it greatly displeased." Jonah, and he became angry. So the prophet declares the message. God brings an amazing revival. Probably the greatest miracle of all the miracles that happened here is this wicked nation that was set upon destroying and conquering other nations around them, turning in complete submission to God. That miraculous, from the king down to the lowest. And the prophet Jonah is displeased and angry. Jerusalem Times, creator God, graciously rescues 6,000, 600,000 souls. Prophet pouts, right? So he's, he's upset. He's not even just pouting. Like, he's angry with God. How dare you? How dare you save 600,000 people? I, I knew you would do this. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. When you read that, if you take out the fact that you know Jonah's complaining and and angry with God, I mean, those are some incredible verses. We love that about God, don't we? That he's gracious and compassionate. We love that he's slow to anger. We're, We're recipients of that. We're beneficiaries of that. We love that he's abundant in loving kindness. We love that he relents in calamity. He doesn't give us what we deserve, right? We deserve death for sin, but he brought Christ to rescue us, to save us. He brought, he brought rescue to the people of Nineveh through the prophecy or proclamation of Jonah, and they repented. And Jonah is, is throwing that back to the Lord and saying, I told you you were going to do this. I told you. We, I didn't even have to leave Israel, and I knew you were going to do this, and that's why I didn't want to do this. Wow. This prophet who was rebellious in the beginning gets thrown into the sea, has some time while he's sinking to the bottom of the sea to think, I need the Lord. Repents, makes a vow to the Lord, follows through, goes the the 550 plus miles to Nineveh, preaches the message, and now he's mad again because the Lord was gracious, because the Lord was kind. So, uh, verse... Verse 3, uh, again, we're still, we still have Jonah here talking. Therefore now, Lord, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I'm so mad. Just, just kill me, Lord. I, I don't want to see these people saved. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? No response from Jonah. Verse 5, um, then Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it, um, Again, from where they saw on, on where Nineveh is located, if you go across uh, the river from there, there are some hills that are to the east of it. So he probably went up on a hillside, sat on it. There he made a shelter for himself, sat under it, 
in the shade until he could see what could happen with the city. So we have our rebellious prophet again. Uh, He's now mad that the Lord has relented from his disaster. He decides, I'm going to go build a shelter over on the hill. Perhaps Perhaps the Lord will change his mind again. Perhaps the Ninevites will do something. And, and maybe if I set up this shelter, I can watch the destruction of Nineveh from here, right? I'm going to get out of the sun. I'm going to set up a shelter. I'm going to watch from the hillside. And maybe, just maybe, something will happen with the city. I don't think he's sitting there in verse 5 going, oh, this is great. They're repenting. He's still angry, right? So he sets up the shelter. And the Lord, in his graciousness, decides that he will give an object lesson to Jonah. Verse 6. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. So he's built a shelter. God causes a plant to come up. It, it provides some shade. It's hot, right? It's Mosul, Iraq. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, some, some nice place. It's hot there, right? So it's, it's hot. This plant comes up uh, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Actually, the word there, even though it's translated extremely, probably makes sense in the English. It's the same root that we get great from. So there's a great fish, great city. He's greatly pleased that this plant is growing up over him. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he, Jonah, said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, and which you came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? And Jonah ends. (laughs) Interesting place to draw a conclusion. What's the object lesson that God, I would argue, graciously gives to Jonah? He doesn't owe Jonah anything. He could have just simply said, Jonah, get up and go back to Israel, right? He didn't owe Jonah an explanation, but he decides to give him a little picture of that by causing a plant to grow up, provide shade, bring him pleasure, and then causes a worm to come along and destroy the plant and it it withers and Jonah's again angry and he illustrates to Jonah the fact that if Jonah can be angry about the life of a plant should God not be concerned with 600,000 souls and rescuing them clearly the answer is yes our God is is interested in his people. He's not a creator that has just created and left the scene. He he cares and he brought a message graciously of repentance to the people of Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't see that. Now, I think I like to think that Jonah later had a a, a change of heart. Uh, we believe that Jonah recorded this story, so he's recording that. I like to believe that he goes back to Israel and and sees uh, what the Lord has done here. But we don't, we don't know that from the story. We're left with a sulking prophet still mad at God for his compassion, for his grace. So the takeaways. Again, a warning of man's inclination towards evil and away from his creator. We see that so many different ways in the story. We see that multiple times from Jonah. We see that from, 
from the, the pagan sailors. We see that from the Ninevites, right? And each of these stories within the story, they are wayward from the Lord. They are deserving of nothing from the Lord. They are, they're rebelling against their creator. And yet we see the second takeaway, a present creator engaged with his creation, right? God is intervening. God is intersecting in the story. He's, he's gracious. He's calling people to repentance. And then we see multiple times the patience of the Lord, the, the redemption of the Lord, the grace of the Lord in that. I would argue we, we, we see that multiple times even within the life of, of Jonah. Here's a redeemed prophet, one who had been saved, one who was serving God, who had g- given prophetic utterances, who was graciously preserved by God. In the story, he runs from God. God intervenes, rescues him. He repents. He comes to Nineveh. He proclaims the message. He then is rebellious again, and the Lord still uses him, right? We see that from the Ninevites. They were descendants of Ham. We, I, I don't think I mentioned, but Nineveh in, in Genesis is, is founded by Nimrod, who's in third generation from Noah, right? So their, for, their founder of the city was a descendant of, of Ham and surely knew the, the story of the flood. We see that from some... Um, the fact that they even had a flood account in their, in their story. In the narrative, their wicked warrior nation, God sends a prophet to them. He prepares their heart, um, works upon them, and they repent, right? And he relents. Now, the postscript on the Ninevites or the Assyrians is that we know 150 years later that Nineveh is actually destroyed. We know that uh, about 60 years later, they're actually used as an instrument to... Uh, reprove the people of Israel um, because of their waywardness and not because they're walking with the Lord at that time. They're, they're back to their, to their wicked ways and so they, they hear the message, they repent here but uh, within a period of time they go back to their false gods, their false worship. So let that be a, a warning also for us to, to recognize the depravity of our own hearts, to reflect on the grace of God, to intersect into our lives, to, to reveal Christ to us And may we throw ourselves upon the grace and the mercy of Christ. And may we be obedient followers of God, not like the rebellious Jonah who had to be reproved multiple times by God. But let us look toward God in his grace and remember the story, uh, which, you know, Jesus actually uses as an object lesson when he talks to the Pharisees, right? He mentions the story uh, of Jonah and uses that as an object lesson for them. In Matthew 12, 39 through 42, if you want to look at that, but uh, we won't have time today. So let me close in prayer.